An ancient and secret way of writing called Nushu was discovered in rural China in the 1980s. A trove of letters and notes was found of women commiserating about their lives in a society dominated by men. It's been described as a language of misery. In one piece written in the early part of the last century, a woman writes that we need Nushu to lament our grievances and sentiments of bitterness. Each writing and each phrase is filled with nothing but blood. In a new documentary called Hidden Letters, we see two young women try and take up Nushu as a practice in modern China, and they struggle to balance their lives as independent women with this traditional practice. But can they or should they revive something so private? Join us for Radio West after this. KUER has a new way for you to communicate with us. We're calling it Tell KUER. Tell KUER is a feature in our mobile app that allows you to send voice messages to the station. Let us know how we're doing, why you listen, or what you'd like to hear more of. Got an idea for a local news story? It's a great place to drop us a line about that, too. Send us a voice message with Tell KUER and find it in the menu of KUER's mobile app. In 1983, a collection of manuscripts were discovered in an isolated community in the Hunan province of China. They were letters and notes written in an odd script, which represented units of sound in the dialect of the region. They were made up of dots and slashes and arcs formed in the shape of a lopsided diamond. And really until that time, they were a secret or deeply, deeply private. It was called Nushu, and it wasn't a conventional language. It was poetry, stories and songs and riddles shared by women in a society dominated by men. It was passed along by mothers to their daughters, among sisters and friends. The documentary Hidden Letters explains that to give each other hope, these women created a script men did not understand. White cloth wrapped around my feet. A handsome boy visits my home. I want to sit with him and have a conversation, but mom doesn't allow me. Why can't girls show our charms? Why can't girls be mischievous? What candle would not shine? In the film, we meet one of the last traditionally trained Nushu masters, a woman named He Yanshin. She's been teaching the youngest Nushu writer in the country, a young woman named Hu Xin. And much of the film is about their relationship. And in this moment, the younger woman wonders what this older master thinks about the effort to revive Nushu and practice it in modern China, to perform it in public, to commercialize it, to market Nushu. Your new shoe is all about dancing. My new shoe belongs to the chamber rooms. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about the documentary Hidden Letters. And that tension between Nushu as it was shared in the past and what it should be now is an important theme in the film. We're going to be screening Hidden Letters next week. We'll give you the details here in a moment. But this is a remarkably intimate film. 
And it's focused mostly on the lives of two young Chinese women who are trying to balance their commitment to the form of Nushu and the expectations they feel about being a woman in Chinese society. But to understand the more nuanced parts of the film, you have to get the basics of Nushu. And for that, we turned to Li Guo. She's a professor of Chinese at Utah State University. There are many uh, different uh, contentious uh, scholarly opinions about how Nishu started. One of these opinions is a local legend which held that Nishu was invented in the 11th century by a woman called Hu Yuxiu, who, uh, who is from the local, local region, and she was selected and sent to the imperial palace to become a concubine of the emperor because of her reputed literary talent. However, uh, when she went to the palace, she later on fell out of the favor of the emperor. So she used the Nushu to describe her palace life and also to express her sense of loneliness and distress. But these messages are very uh, personal. And in order to hide or <laughs> uh, get, uh, get around the court guards and uh, eunuchs and censors, she used this particular script, which could be understood by the targeted audience. Hence, it, is, it provides her this sense of security or privacy. Um, mm. However, um, among scholars who actually did the field work, uh, they can trace women's use of Nishu back to at most 150 years ago. Among local communities, Nishu was considered as very precious personal belongings. When women, uh, when the authors of Nishu pass away, they will always uh, have some of this taken away with them uh, by putting them, uh, by burying them together, or they will they will burn some of these scripts, these personal writings. That is why uh, it is difficult to find many surviving surviving samples of Nishu. How does it work? I, I guess it like mm. is it a language as much as it is a, a, a type of writing, a, a, a kind of script? And talk and talk about how how does it translate to the speaking voice? You mentioned that one of the important parts of it is that it was chanted, if not if not sung, um, mm. and the characters kind of fit into a a shape mm. uh, as they're written. How how does it? How does it work? How do we describe it? Mm. So uh, in, in comparison with Hanzi or Mandarin, Nishu, Nishu is different in two ways. One is, uh, one is that uh, it is graphic uh, in terms of graphic and linguistic features. So uh, in comparison with Hanzi character, which are square and symmetrical, uh, Nishu characters are diamond shaped. Uh, second, um, in the Nishu system, words uh, the words may sound the same in the native dialect, and then they can be written in the same way. It means that Nishu was written to be performed, to be sung, to be chanted, and they are organically connected with the local dialect in Jiangyong, mm. in the rural area, in the village. So the dialect in the county is very different from the dialect in the village. Uh, Nishu represents this kind of connection, close representation of the of the local dialect in the village area, and, and when they they wrote, as I understand it, they wrote these letters to each other. I, I also read they wrote autobiographies, which I guess is to say that they were telling their own stories. Um, and I, I guess it it's not we shouldn't understand it as prose. It, it isn't a kind of conventional way of of writing as I understand it. It's more an expression of kind of poetry. Is that right? Yes. All of the Nishu writings could be considered as carrying this kind of formulaic nature. Some of these songs are very didactic, teaching the new brides to perform her womanly duties. Some of them reflect Confucian gender norms. But largely, um, underneath certain layers of these expressions, you will always find this personal voice of a feminine speaker, um, expressing her feelings, reflecting on her hardship in life, uh, and also uh, sometimes putting, uh, putting forth queries or questions about her fate or destiny. The narrative shows this kind of ritualistic expression of grief. Uh, Nishu narratives always reflect this kind of negotiation between compromise, resignation, and resistance. Hmm. I guess the question is, then, did Nushu challenge that role of of women in society, did it, or, or did it just provide comfort 
for women who were resigned to living in that role. In other words, Nushu didn't call women necessarily to rebel or even become more outspoken. It was just about commiserating with each other because this is the way it is. And we need to be able to just gather together and talk about it. This is the way it is. We can't fix it. We shouldn't fix it, maybe. But this is how it is. Is that is is that right in some way? Mm. Yes, it is a way of writing and chanting issue allows women to, on the one hand, to find a connection with a network of sworn sisters, of mm-hmm. sympathetic female audience, uh, yeah. that helps to provide them emotional and moral support and sympathy uh, for their personal sufferings. On the other hand, it also allows them to express their emotions and hardship in a culturally approved way. Uh, it's not uh, not exactly a kind of practice of resistance. Overall, the purpose of writing Yishu is to seek sisterhood and support from each other and also to find a release of emotional anxiety. This was something I read written by a woman uh named C. Hugh. Mm. I'm sure I mispronounced that, but it was in the early part of the last century. And this is one uh, of the letters that she had written. She wrote, how many beautiful women die sad and with misfortune. We read Nushu, she writes, not for official titles, not for fame, but because we suffer. And then she wrote, each writing and each phrase is filled with blood, nothing but blood. What do you make of of that? It sounds so sad. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a uh, emotionally uh, very provocative, uh, very deeply moving piece, and there are many important themes embedded in 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 this song. On the one hand. There is a lament of beauty, right? The, the predicament mm. of beauty. Beautiful women in Chinese uh, tradition, it has been said that uh, beauty does not bring good fortune for women. Beauty often hmm. is a burden. I read this description of Nushu by a professor in, in Beijing. And she wrote that, that Nushu for women was like, and this is how she described it, a ray of sunshine. It made their lives more pleasant. In fact, she described it as a culture of sunshine that allowed women to speak up with their own voices and fight against male chauvinism. So it wasn't, yes, it was about misery. It was expressing their condition, but it was also to provide comfort, to provide that ray of sunshine too, I guess. That's important to understand, I guess. Mm-hmm. Some uh, contemporary scholars will read um, read Nishu more in uh, in line of feminist uh, feminist writing or proto-feminist writing. On the other hand, I would agree that mostly for rural women of the time, singing and writing Nishu is uh, a very important way of providing mutual support. In fact, the orality of Nishu, right, the fact that it is written to be sung, to be chanted, and it also it demands an answer from the audience in the same language. Because of this kind of nature, it allows the communication between women, right, across those boundaries, spatial boundaries. Li Guo, she's a professor of Chinese at Utah State University. We're going to be screening Hidden Letters with the Utah Film Center next Wednesday night. That's February 8th. We'll be at the downtown Salt Lake City Library. You can get details on our website, radiowest.org. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Here's an easy way to boost your monthly gift to KUER. Switch to a direct donation from your bank account. Your support won't be interrupted due to lost cards or expiration dates, and when you do switch, you'll help KUER save thousands of dollars each year by offsetting steep processing fees. Most importantly, you're strengthening your support of the essential local news and NPR programming you depend on. Make the switch today at KUER.org membership. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about a secret language Chinese women shared for hundreds of years called Nushu. It was a way of writing as much as an actual language, more poetry than prose. And it's the subject of the latest film in our documentary series called Hidden Letters. 
It's a profile, really, of these two young women trying to preserve and teach new shoe to a society of men who just don't get it. We have with us the scholar Lee Guo. Let's talk about uh, the film and these two characters, these two main characters that divorced museum guide Hu Xin and this musician who, when we when we first see her in the film, Simu, um, she is about to be married. We see this relationship with her fiancé play out. The film has been described as this kind of portrait of gender relations in modern China. Talk a little bit about that, if you would. What is the, Hmm. if you feel comfortable talking about the condition of gender relations in China today and the way it's expressed in this story of these two young women who are drawn to the tradition of Nushu, but who are very much modern women who who are dealing in the in the real world now. Mm-hmm. In the first case, the female artist, the musician, um, and singer, it seems like she uh, experiencing this kind of gap between rural and urban spaces. She definitely comes from an urban family. Her, her mother is one of those uh, one of those earlier pioneering liberated women, right? Um, yeah. Who, yeah. who worked as a doctor. I think right. in, a, in a village, um, and from the short uh, interview with her mother, we can see that she grew up in a very open family, uh, with great support for for women. But on the other hand, um, when she goes to the uh, fiancé's um, family in the village, she she was trying to communicate with her future mother-in-law through new shoe, and right? she brought brought a gift that she prepared. She wrote herself. And mm-hmm. her mother, her her possible future mother-in-law was also suffering this kind of gender oppression or prejudice because when their father passed away, the village uh, tr- village people, tr- village community treated their family lightly because they do, their, their son was away. So the mother must have also been suffering a lot. Uh, so we see the, these two generations of women from very different backgrounds um, possibly going to form a bond. However, uh, the son, I think, also is sandwiched in between different difficult situations. He needs to plan out uh, for, the, mm-hmm. for the future of, uh, of, of his small family. Uh, and he urges her to take on more commercial jobs and abandon Yushu so that they yeah. can buy a house. Each of them has to face different possibilities and has to make a choice, but it is a sacrifice too much for her to make. Right. Well, and I think there's this moment that I I connected with with a, a kind of modern version of Nushu in some way because we see Simu talking with her friends, commiserating with other women about how difficult it is to be a woman. Her friends are saying, if you have doubts, because Simu is wondering if she should get married to this man and and become this traditional, conventional mother, give up Nushu, her practice of Nushu. Um, And they say, look, if you have doubts, don't risk it. They, They tell her that they feel powerless. They talk about how it's impossible to find this balance. And I thought her sitting around talking with these friends and these women is the same kind of friendship and camaraderie and commiseration that maybe maybe Nushu was 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 um, accomplishing in another time. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. In this particular case, we see her uh, in multiple scenes, right? Uh, on the one hand, she travels um, back to, she travels to Shanghai, and mm-hmm. she's striking out on her own and establishing her own career. 
um, trying to、uh, find out new ways of expressing her personal ideals and establishing dialogue with Nishu writers in the past, making connections with her peers at the present, and and immersing herself in all of these kind of、uh, possibilities and experiences in everyday life, and thinking about reflecting on them, meaning reflecting on them conscientiously.、Um, on the other hand. Uh, through her eyes, we we also perceive women's difficult situations, sandwiched between work and marriage, between personal ideals and family duties. And similarly, we see that in the、uh, in Hu Xin,、uh, in the youngest、um, mm-hmm. youngest practitioner of uh, of Nu、uh, Shu、uh, from Jiangyong, her life also seems to be a quite unconventional one. On the one hand, she's suffering this social stigma because she's a divorcee. This induced a lot of suffering and grievances, but also contributed to her ability to identify with elder generation of women, elder generations of women who relied on Nishu to express similar, similar feelings. So we can read these stories as parallel tales,、right? mirroring each other, but sharing similar challenges. Much of this、uh, in the film is about how Nishu is going to. If it can fit in modern society, and this question of how it's practiced or thought of now compared to the way it was, and I wondered, it's interesting to to see that this effort by national authorities to try to revive Nushu, because what does that mean? I mean, as as the film really, you know, conveys so so powerfully, it it's it was. A language of misery for a lot of women, not a protocol necessarily for how women should behave or how they should treat men or how they should, you know, keep their house. But it was a, this secret language where women expressed the anguish of being second-class citizens. How do you revive a secret language that expressed misery? In a, and why would authorities even be interested in reviving something like that? And and do so. The, so to me, the question was: Do they really do officials actually want to revive this, or is this just kind of a concerted effort to change its history or undermine its deeper meaning?、Mm-hmm. Uh, so Nishu was considered one of those、uh, one of the invisible、um, cultural heritage、uh, traditions in China. And、uh, there has been uh, in, uh, immense efforts uh, to uh, quote unquote rescue or revive Nushu as a、uh, as a cultural phenomenon. However,、um, as one of the elder、uh, Nushu practitioners He Jianxin said in the in the film, what is the government or what is the official、uh, official agencies have been doing? Are not the same as the natural transmitters of Nushu.、Uh, so there are two venues.、Um, Of carrying on Nushu legacy, one is official、uh, official venues、uh, trying to promote Nushu through、uh, governmental forces. The other one is、um, the tradition of natural natural transmitters. Those who those local women who practice Nushu and teach each other how to read and chant Nushu. So here we see an irony、uh, between the official effort of、uh, reinventing Nushu and the local community who are consisted of women. Sharing this anxiety about the future of Nushu, definitely the personal level of or grassroots level of、mm. efforts、um, trying to promote Nushu is more、um, organic, and it also、mm. truly articulates women's experiences and connects them with greater communities,、uh, with earlier、uh, elder generations, and also passes on this legacy of women, women supporting each other, women's、uh, spirit of sisterhood. But we also see some funny、uh, appropriation of Nushu in some occasions in the film. For instance, there is a moment when there is a camp, I think, for young girls、mm-hmm. how to act, how to behave like a princess. That is exactly. The opposite of what elder generations of Nushu writers would advocate for. For instance, He Jianxin said, "I would never write a Nushu song just to teach didactically teach girls how to behave. I would never、yeah. do that." So she said that. However, 
were also given realistic reflections about the challenges of integrating this uh, ancient language into daily life usage. I I read about how when older women who practiced Nushu in another time felt that their lives were coming to an end, that they would ask their families to burn their work or ask that it be placed in their coffin when they died. So over time, it was literally either burned or buried away. And this explains how it dwindled and eventually passed away, the practice of Nushu. And it made me wonder, is it extinct actually? In the sense that the Nushu being practiced now or the attempts at understanding Nushu now isn't practiced in the same way. It's not practiced in in secret. It's not practiced um, in obscurity. People know about it now. They're trying to revive this as a sort of cultural traditional practice. But can you? Hasn't it just passed away in its real form? Um, or, or, Or can it be revived? What do you think? In the film, there is a moment when Hu Xin, um, it seems like she's very much relieved about this urgency of quote and quote rescuing Nishu. It seems like she feels that it is okay to accept the practice of Nishu is, is winning in comparison in the past. The film questions this notion of cultural authenticity, right? About, mm-hmm. about, uh, about the Nishu and about also, it also questions the need to consider Nishu as this essentialized cultural tradition. Instead, it is very open-ended. It suggests that there are multiple ways of practicing Nishu and integrate it into personal experience. Professor Liguo, thank you very much. Thank you. It is my honor. Thank you. Li Guo, she's a professor of Chinese in the World Languages and Cultures Department at Utah State University. We'll take another break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Being a dependable, trustworthy news source, that's our goal at KUER. In order to meet that goal, we depend on listener contributions. Your support ensures the local and national news heard on KUER remains independent, commercial-free, and accessible for all. If you rely on our programming to stay informed, become our newest sustainer with a gift of just $5 a month. Start your monthly support at KUER.org slash donate. This is Radio Westenberg for Brizio. Today in the program, we're talking about the documentary film Hidden Letters. It's about the secret language women in rural China shared with each other for hundreds of years. It's called Nushu. Really, the film is not a history of the practice. We covered that part of the story earlier in the program. It's mostly a profile of these two young women who write and teach Nushu. The tension between how this script was shared in the past and what it should be now is an important theme in the film. But it also raises questions about how much has changed in the lives of women in Chinese society from the time they privately shared their misery to now when Nushu is being marketed and performed in public. Violet Defung directed Hidden Letters. She'll join us next week after the screening. And we began our conversation by talking about her work and the kinds of stories she says she wants to tell as a filmmaker. I'm always really drawn to make films and tell stories that challenge our own stereotypes and misconceptions because I grew up as a Shanghainese. I remember... 1993 was a really important year um, for me that that's the first year that Shanghai opened its first subway. And that's also the year that the beginning marked the beginning of the urbanization of uh, China. Mm. And all of a sudden, all these migrant workers from all over rest of the country started flooding into Shanghai and they didn't they were not allowed to move before. And all of a sudden they can find jobs in Shanghai 
So we're surrounded and don't know how to kind of digest that situation as Shanghainese. And I remember me with you know my family and so many other millions of Shanghainese. When we get onto the subway, people start to talk about this taste of mud. We we call them the taste of mud. To describe the smell that you when you get on the subway of these migrant workers who came because it's confined space and you can smell their sweat, their mud.、Mm-hmm. So we have this term, and I remember I was naming that a lot, you know, in my conversations with other people, friends、uh, too, when I was in high school. That was the same year that we had this documentary that came out in Shanghai, which is probably the, the first documentary I've ever seen, and most of the Shanghainese have ever seen in their lifetime.、Mm-hmm. That's in the Verite style, and it's a story about this migrant woman. Who had this illegitimate child with the Shanghai resident who who denied the child and also denied this woman and and refused to you know acknowledge that this is her child his child. So I remember I was feeling so ashamed of myself of thinking of that taste of mud and that was the moment that I realized the power of storytelling. So that becomes what I. I You know, fascinated me of why I want to tell stories, and that's why I move on to be a journalist, and also came to the U.S. to study documentaries. Let's let's talk about some of the particulars of the stories in the film. First of all, as far as Nushu goes,、um, one of the things that、um, that the the film conveys there's the is this important distinction that. They were writing. These women were writing, first of all, secretly to each other, and I wanted to ask a little bit about what it was they were saying, what they t- what they were telling each other. There's a moment where we see the words, you know, "You're not the only one who suffers." Some are in worse circumstances. Some mountains are higher. Some lower. What was it essentially that these women? We're saying to each other in this ancient secret script. So the majority of these writing from Yushu is to share their miseries, is to share their sufferings, because you know, under those circumstances in feudal societies, women were seen on the bottom of the society. They're taught to obey their husbands, they're taught to obey their fathers, and even their sons. And that's that's written as the three principles of a woman's. Traditional virtual,、mm-hmm. and you have to obey that. They also have bond feet, and they don't have rights to access to education ex- unless you're an elite class of woman, like you came from very wealthy or like powerful families. Then you have access to education, but the level that the woman can access to education and the content they can access to education is also very different from men. And then on top of all of that. In this particular area in central China, because that's the most secluded and the most poorest area of China, these women are even on the more bottom of the society of the bottom because they were so poor. It is at that kind of level of unbearable conditions that they live under physically, emotionally, intellectually. But with the birth of Nushu, they have this language that men didn't understand,、mm. so they can talk. Freely, they can write freely in actually a structure of poetry、yeah. and songs to talk about their sufferings, to talk about their unbearable situations. This is like you know, like if you don't have the existence of Nushu, you probably have no record of that whole class of women in China in feudal society for thousands of years. Let's talk a little bit about what you were trying to accomplish with the film. Is it, it's not a Somebody else can do. You sort of left it to someone else to do a story that explores the anthropology of the, you know, the history of Nushu. What you're trying to do is is a film, is tell stories. I've, I've seen it described in a review as a as a framing device for a larger portrait of gender relations in modern China. And I wonder if you think that's right, but also explain what it is you wanted to do. With the film, it's again, it's not a documentary history of Nushu. It's something else. I mean, what propelled me to make this film are not, you know, some answers in methodology of 
how I want to make this film. It's more of particular questions, what I'm guiding myself through of making this film that I myself even try to find answers for. And I know that my main characters are also trying to find answers mm-hmm. for. And I know millions of others are trying to find answers for. And, you know, one question is that how can we have neutral relive in all of us? You know, that's one thing. The other thing is that how can we use neutral as a device to really look at the gender suppressions of women today, not just in China, but globalizedly, you know, because I think that it's all relevant. Let's talk about the two main characters and their stories mm-hmm. that play out in the film. Um, Hu Xin, let's talk about her first. Well, maybe first before we get there, tell me um, tell me where you found these these women. There, there are two women. Um, one is a, a, a museum guide who's gone through a divorce. One is a, a musician. Um, wh- where did you find them, and 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 how did you um, how did you settle on these two characters? Well, my casting pool is very small. Nationally certified neutral practitioners uh, today were only seven. Wow! And, wow. Yeah, and and one of them actually died before we launched the film at Tribeca last year. So. So Huxin is actually the youngest one. And I knew this, you know, before I go into this film, because of those questions, what guided me, I knew that I need to cast the younger generation, the millennial generation, because they're in the forefront and at the crossroad mm-hmm. of struggling with their own gender identities in both in their professional and in their personal lives. Um, so Huxin is the youngest of the six now, and she's the spokesperson of Nushu. Um, and she's also from that village. So, you know, her whole family is from that village. And then she still suffers till this day of, you know, being the fourth girl in the family of how, you know, her mom was like looked down by the entire village because of that. Um, and her grandmother wouldn't even look at her when she was born just because it's another girl. So things like that is like, rooted in her right these inequality is rooted in her and of course the other important element is that i know that i wanted to cast one character in rural area and one character in urban settings because the struggles of women in these two settings are vastly different but at the same time um you know internally they're they're dealing with the same things you know for example the woman in the city that I casted, Simu, you know, she on the outside, she is very independent. She's very strong. She can determine what she wanted to do with her own marriage. And she's also, you know, in this annual exhibition with 20 other female artists trying to use different artworks to find their own gender voices, which I thought it was really inspiring. But, you know, even though she kind of left her fiance with a very strong mind and and will, but deep down she's also struggling whether she's, you know, a good woman in that regard, and how come that she's still not married, you know, things yeah. like that. So I felt like the more that I can get into the internal space of these women mm-hmm. and then access emotional feelings, the more universal yeah. this is, this film is going to be because that's how we're all are. <laughs> yeah. Let, yeah, let me get to some some particular moments. There um, for Hu Xin, she one of the things that you convey early on in the film is this idea that she says she wants to tell, and this is how she puts it, the true story of Nushu. And right. that seems to be the, the 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 conflict here. Like what what is what what was it? What should it be, Nushu? And, you, you know, she talks about how people want to hear happy songs. They see Nushu as a, a performance, something to enjoy. But she, it, it, in this sense, she sort of explains people don't really understand it, or many don't. They don't get it because it's about, about misery. And there's mm-hmm. such a contrast with her trying to be reverent, with mm-hmm. the language and the others who are just having a good time and sort of celebrating. Talk a little bit about this part. I think the unfortunate scenarios and parallels of how people 
don't even try to pay attention of what the real legacy of Nushu is, hmm. but merely just try to profit out of it. Yeah. Versus how capitalism also plays a role in terms of unbalancing the gender equality big time. You know, I see there's tremendous parallels in these two storylines and how Nushu as the last thing that women created intentionally not to have men understand so they can create a safe space to talk about their own sufferings, to talk about their vulnerabilities, to be themselves, most importantly, that they can be themselves mm. um, and to generate power from within as a community, as this, you know, intentionally structured sisterhood. I thought that's that's the the most power of what Nushu is. And now even that is being taken away by capitalism, by the co-opting by men, you know, mm -hmm. and how ironic that is in parallel with how our society is, you know, driven by capitalism is also damaging so much of our gender equality in that sense. Let's talk about Simu. She's the other powerful character in the film. When we first meet her, she is engaged to be married and her, she and her fiancé seem to be on the same page. At least that's the sense of it. And then she goes to visit his parents. And this is where the, the reality of, of their life starts to really you know, become clear. Um, and there's the scene where Simu is standing around while – her fiance's mother and sisters and others are, you know, making lunch for the men. Um, she, she wants to help, but she really can't. And then um, because, you know, the, the, the kitchen is so full and, and then, and then she has this really candid conversation that you capture with her fiance, where she's trying to say that, she wants to – her interest in Nushu, she wants to pursue that. She wants a full-time job and he right. just dismisses it as a, as a hobby, as not a real job and he's kind of lecturing her. And as he says, let me explain to you the logic. We need right. to – you can't work full-time. Right. My mother needs to come and visit us when we have this baby. Talk a little bit about that scene. It's kind of intense wonder how you manage yeah. to capture the kind of the candor. They're both really quite open and you can see her, the doubts in her mind now that she's like, I don't know if I can live like this. I think that it's interesting for me to see how the Westerners interpret the scene in a way compared to how Chinese are interpreting the scene. Where America is, you know, the society has progressed so much, you know, since the feminist movement. And we didn't have that movement in China, right? And then we're very much like the society is deeply rooted in cultural and the understanding of cultural in a lot of times is understanding of gender roles. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly why that I don't want people to kind of like take that scene out and then really see him as a bad guy, as like really dismissing her. But at the same time, he represents millions and millions of Chinese men yeah. in the same mindset because they felt like it's their responsibility to set this plan for the family. So the reason that we have those planted in the film is for people to see the context of from men's point of view of their context of why they will behave this way. But at the same time, when we put the camera on there, people start to think about whether that's right or not. You know, the differences of what they want become so clear there. Then, you know, that help people to think from the opposite side of like what went wrong. <laughs> um, the honesty that they have, and that's the other question you asked about, you know, like how can we capture such candid conversations? I think that it's it's not hard to, build trust with the characters, especially when characters who are not come with power or money, you know, like they, and when we're very transparent with them, why we make films and they're on the same page with us, it's easy for, for them to trust us. It's more about how do we use that trust? Yeah. I, I want to ask about 
one of the um, really powerful relationships you capture in the film, and that is between um, Hu Xin and one of the last Nushu masters, He Yanxin. Tell us, first of all, for those who, who don't know who she is, He Yanxin, she's She's a remarkable figure in the film. Tell us who she is, first of all, and I want to talk, have you talk about that relationship between this young woman sure. and this older woman. So He Yanxin is the last, one of the last living Yushu masters, and to me, she is the last living Yushu master. She really is the only one left that's still alive, that learned it in the most natural setting and learned it in the, in the way that's, the justice reason of why these women need to learn this language. Um, she learned it from her grandma. Yeah. And when her grandmother died, she actually burned everything she wrote to her grandmother. And then she stopped telling anybody that she knows Nushu because she felt like the happiest day of her life is gone. But she's also somebody who really embodied the true spirit of Nushu. Mm -hmm. I mean, like thinking about those days, right around time when China had the revolution, she had the guts to refuse to sleep with her husband for three years and and even ask her husband not to show up at their wedding because it's arranged marriage and she doesn't want to marry that guy and that kind of fiercenessness is because she had Nushu because she had this you know relationship with other women with Nushu that the support that she had it somehow made her like so fierceless and <laughs> And but also like made her so resilient in such a way of raising five kids when her husband died, and she to me represent the true legacy and the true meaning of Nushu even. But I didn't know like when I started filming Hu Xing that her path leading her to be in a different place at the very end of the film is through that relationship with He Yanxing. Hu Xing says something at the, at the end of the film that. She doesn't really worry about the future of Nushu in the same way that she used to. I mean, throughout the film, we see her really fretting about, gosh, what's going to come of this, this right. you know, secret script and language? What, what, what will become of it? But she seems to come to this point where she says, and it seems really profound, this thing. She says, it's when I'm strong that Nushu is revived. What, what does she mean? I think that... That Nushu made her who she is now. Yeah. Simply as that. And and I think that's for both characters. That's also for me as well. And I think that's that's why that it still has a place to live um, for all of us. I wanted to ask, there's a scene, the, the commercial part of the um, of the film um, where there, there are these attempts to commercialize Nushu is, is uh, and there are a number of them, um, I wanted to ask you about one in particular. You don't name him, but we, we you do mention that this is the former Nushu Museum manager, and he's mm -hmm. he says, "Look, um, and again, I don't want to, um, I don't want to make him out to be a villain or um, oversimplify where he's coming from. I'm sure, I'm sure it can be understood culturally, and and, and you can help me out with that. But he also mentions that." In order for it to prosper, Nushu, it it has to be commercialized. It has to be marketed. And the thing he says is kind of, I have to say, sort of maddening to see it. He says the real value of Nushu is that it conveys the qualities of women. And the first quality, he says, is obedience. Mm -hmm. And the second mm -hmm. is acceptance. Mm -hmm. But But Nushu isn't acceptance or mm -hmm. obedience. And mm -hmm. so, so I'm just wondering, just talk a little bit about that conflict because it's, it's remarkable. Yeah. I mean, I, he's actually a perfectly nice guy when I met him, yeah. but his understanding of Nushu just blow my mind. And it shows me, and again, again, it's not just him. It's, you know, throughout the film, there are different men who is risk, responses to Nushu is what I'm saying is that I feel the response to Nushu is how the the response to women still, you know, like that's what they want from women. And that's what they thought why Nushu is so beautiful. You know, like, but they absolutely missed <laughs> missed the 
you know, the real essence of what Nushu is, which is really, really sad. And it can be really, really like maddening, maddening as well. But that shows where a man's mindset is. Well, set aside the just the even the gender, just the gender part of it, which is frustrating enough, you know, the but later we see this effort to use Nushu to sell potatoes and Kentucky right. fried chicken. And it that I have to say it almost seemed like a joke, like a parody, like that couldn't right. be real. Yeah, I mean, again, that I think it's important for people to see that Nushu is taking on its own path in the film, <laughs> that mm -hmm. it's going to a Wonderland or Disneyland or whatever. But let's come back to talk about what it really represents and, and, you know, like where, where women really are still at today. Yeah. I want to ask you one one more question. And it's something that occurred to me right at the beginning of the film in this title sequence in the film about the, the women in China who for thousands of years were silenced. And the, the title sequence says, most left no record of their lives. Right. And that seemed like the, the, the saddest thing of all. S say mm -hmm. something about that finally, would you? So like I said that if it's not because of the ex existence of Nushu, we probably have no record of women of that particular socioeconomic status in the society of China um, of their life experiences whatsoever um, because they don't have, they didn't have access to writing. They didn't have access to, they didn't have access to um, literature at all. But thanks to thanks to the creation of these women, these bravery women, that we have this wonderful legacy and just like mind blowing to me of what a single written language can do and can alter, you know, the fate of lives and can really empower women decades, decades later or hundreds of years later. So in that sense, I really wanted to thank those women who I still cannot understand and imagine what kind of wisdom, intelligence, and heart it took them, and most importantly, what kind of unbearable situations that it took them to build this language. But however conditions that it took them to build, the impact of what they created still lasts today. Violet Defong, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Violet Defong. She directed the documentary Hidden Letters. She's going to be joining us at the screening next week. You can be there too, the library in downtown Salt Lake City, Wednesday, February 8th. You can get details on our website, radiowest.org. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter at Radio West. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Carrie Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.